but but if you have your Bibles by now, you turn to Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 8 is where we will fix our attention, and we're going to bounce a little bit back and forth uh, between verses 1 through 8. But but as, as, as I'm reading this and as I'm thinking about the significance of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how it was the most significant moment in history, um, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit, believe it or not, of Marvel movies and Star Wars movies. I, I, I have a um, dad habit where, or a dad tradition where every single Marvel movie that ever hits the theater or every single Star Wars movie that has ever hit the theater, I make it my mission to take my sons to see that Marvel movie or that Star Wars movie. And so we have a great tradition that we have shared for years now, upon years. And one of the things that I've noticed is that my sons are not nearly as enamored by the, by the spectacle of Marvel movies or the spectacle of Star Wars movies like I was as a kid. When I was a kid, Star Wars came out, Return of the Jedi, Empire Strike Back, all of these different movies, Spider-Man, I was amazed by the technology and the special effects that was at work. It, it just, it just, it was mind-boggling uh, to, to think how could they put these things on screen and make them look so real. And over time, we've gotten so accustomed and so used to seeing that that it's no longer amazing. My son's watching that. Yeah, it was a good movie, and 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 maybe the story was okay. But if the story is not great, they're not really all that enamored by it. Why? Because the technology no longer amazes them. They're not shocked to see some of the things that I was amazed at seeing. You know, over time, I think sometimes the resurrection can be like that for Christians. You know, we hear the story so much, and it's repeated throughout our lives. It's, it's given to us, it's handed down to us for many of us as children. We grow up in church year after year after year. We hear the story on Easter Sunday. And ultimately, at some point, for some reason, it loses, it loses its significance. But I'm hoping we can strike back and we can recapture the significance of Easter this morning. I'm hoping the Lord will move your heart to be awakened to the wonder of the resurrection this morning. When you look at this text and and, 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 and Mark chapter 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was, was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, rolled back. It was very long. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He was risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Trembling and acknowledging um, and astonishment had seized them. I want to talk a little bit about the significance of the resurrection, the historical significance, the liberating significance, the, 
the hopeful significance, the purposeful significance of the resurrection. First, in understanding the historical significance of Christianity, it would serve us well to say that the early church believed that the resurrection was actually in his, a historical event. They did not believe it was metaphorical. They did not believe that it was simply symbolic. They did not believe that it was a story copied from other accounts of ancient deities. The disciples believed without, without being compelled or forced that the resurrection was 100% real. Now, some have tried to use a number of different theories to debunk the resurrection, which if you take them one by one, you see that they simply just don't add up. Take, for example, the crooked disciples theory regarding surrounding the resurrection. Some have said the disciples themselves were hucksters, bona fide ancient snake oil salesmen, trying to exploit Jesus' name for power and, and Jesus' death for influence and, and maybe even money. And the problem with that theory is that only a small number of people are willing to die for something that they believe in. So you can imagine how much that number goes down when you talk about dying for something you know to not be true. The fourth century, uh, one fourth century historian, full of sarcasm, decided to do a little bit of role playing in this following quote that I'm about to read. Now this would have had to have, this would have had to have been the conversation between the disciples to face such the consequences for a lie. Quote, let us band together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances which we never saw, and let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture or and whipping inflicted for no good reason? Let us go out to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. Highly unlikely this happened. But this isn't the only theory surrounding the disciples that's used to try and disprove the resurrection. For example, there's the hallucinating disciples. This is a theory that has been thrown uh, against the wall to, again, invalidate the resurrection. And it is a theory that the disciples were just simply hallucinating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The idea is that maybe they were crooked, but maybe they were just seeing things. Catholic professor of philosophy Peter Kreef and Catholic priest and apologist Father Ronald Ticelli captured a host of reasons why this is obviously a, a stretch of the imagination, to say the least. Number one, there were too many witnesses who saw Jesus. Paul talks about in his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus and that were alive to tell the story. Number two, hallucinations last typically for a few seconds, maybe even a few minutes. This hallucination, Jesus hung around for 40 days. Number three, this hallucination returned many times. And it returned many times to same people, not people who were considered insane before this. Number four, the hallucinations, normally hallucinations, happen to individuals. They are not shared experiences. They don't happen to groups of people. Number five, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, 
they thought themselves that he was a ghost. And he had to eat something to prove that he was not. The resurrected Christ ate with his disciples on at least two different occasions. He even asked his disciples to touch him. And so there's all sorts of reasons to believe that the disciples were not hallucinating when they bear witness to the resurrected Savior. But there's even people who would like to disprove the resurrection of the Savior by saying that Jesus himself faked his death, that it was a fraudulent Jesus at work. But this theory doesn't make sense when you think about the, the institution of Roman capital punishment. The Romans were efficient and effective in dealing death to those that they believe warranted. Listen to the evidence that one scholar highlights and, and as she lays out and makes the case for, or, uh, for why this theory is not true. She talks about the nature of Jesus' injuries. He was brutally whipped, beaten, crowned with deep thorns into his, his head, all of which resulted in enormous blood loss and tissue damage. He collapsed while carrying his cross to the crucifixion site. But not only the nature of his injuries, the nature of the actual execution, the nature of crucifixion. It virtually guarantees death from suffocating. In an attempt to bolster their view, the skeptics cite the historian Josephus, who describes an extremely rare case in which one person survived crucifixion, but they overlook the fact that his account describes three crucifixion victims who were alive when they, when, when they were taken down, but two of which died shortly thereafter despite receiving excellent Roman medical care. But it doesn't end there. Remember that the Bible describes the moment where Jesus was pierced in his side and blood and water spilled from that side. Not only that, the Roman soldiers themselves were trained executors and they were charged with making sure he was dead before being taken off the cross. And when they went to break Jesus' legs to quicken his death, they found out that he had already died. You see, there is plenty of evidence that the Romans did the job that they intended to do, did the job that they were good at doing. But there's even evidence in this text about the, 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 the veracity of the resurrection. When you look at verse 1 and 2, for example, you see that the, 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 that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. All three of these women were on site. And it's interesting because in a patriarch male-first, male-dominant culture, the first witnesses to the resurrection just so happened to be women. This strengthens the case for the resurrection's truthfulness. You see, women's testimony in that day was discounted. It was disregarded in this culture. So if you're trying to get your audience to believe a story, it would be a bad idea to have the women serve as the witnesses to that story. But see, this wasn't just a story. This was the truth. The most important and most significant truth in human history. And to show his regard for the dignity of women, Jesus pushes the women forward. It allows them to buck against the culture of the day and be and give them the high calling of being the first to witness his resurrection. 
One more thing on the historical significance and trustworthiness of the resurrection accounts. The fact that it was totally unexpected. You know, contrary to some theories that have gained momentum in, in recent years, the resurrection is not a copycat story. In fact, it appears that many ancient accounts about divine figures were copied from the resurrection of Jesus. There's one historian who states that the resurrection of Christ cannot be borrowed because there is no solid evidence of a teaching concerning a deity's resurrection in any other religions that existed prior to the second century. The resurrection, for example, of the, 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 the deity Adonis is not spoken of until the second, roughly the second through fourth century. The resurrection of Addis is not spoken of until after AD 150. And unlike the pagan myths, the real literal historical accounts of Jesus' resurrection was the first actual attempt recorded to root a resurrection in literal history to include witnesses to the account. One such group of witnesses was the disciples themselves. See, when Mary and the other women returned from witnessing the resurrection, they returned to a group of men who at first weren't convinced that they were being honest. These men were not expecting a resurrection. They thought the movement had come to an end. See, different sects of Judaism believe different things concerning the resurrection, but even the ones that do believe or subscribe to resurrections believe in a final resurrection for the entire nation not the resurrection of one central figure. Listen to the scholar and philosopher William Lane Craig in his essay, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Quote, Jesus' Jewish belief always concerned a resurrection at the end of the world, not a resurrection in the middle of history. This traditional Jewish con uh, conception was the pre-possession of, of Jesus' own disciples. The notion of a genuine resurrection occurring prior to God's bringing about the world's end would have been foreign to them. Jewish belief always concerned a general resurrection of the people, not the resurrection of an isolated individual. You see, this becomes clearly evident in the gospel accounts when you see how often Jesus foreshadows and hints at his death and resurrection and how often the disciples miss it. It's not on their radar until it's literally staring them in the face. See, even, this poor, even these poor women in, in Mark chapter 16, they're headed to the tomb, and on their way, they're asking amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? There's not even as much as a passing thought that Christ could in fact have risen from the dead, even though he literally told them. You see, all of the disciples, all of the women, they were all hopeless, they were all scared, they were all doubtful. And then all of a sudden, everything changes, and they go from hopeless to hopeful, and they go from scared to bold and courageous, and they go from doubtful to, to joyful, even in the face of persecution. What happened to all of them, we must ask? The resurrection. The most significant event in history happened and turned the world upside down. But you see, saints, the resurrection wasn't just an event that was happening in front of them. It was an event that was happening to them. The resurrection is not just a significant moment in human history for history's sake. 
The resurrection is a significant moment in human history for humanity's sake. Yes, you should care about it because of what it means for human history, but you should care even more about it for what it means for humanity's eternity. I want to highlight three areas of humanity that are radically changed because of the resurrection. Number one, our potential for freedom. Number two, our potential for hope. And number three, our potential to live with purpose, eternal, enduring purpose. Let's start with the freedom. You see, because of the resurrection, we can now experience freedom. The resurrection has a liberating significance for humanity. Now, before you say, what are you talking about, Prophet, I, I, I'm already free. I'm not talking about freedom from physical chains. You see, our most dangerous bondage is beyond physical. It's beyond literal chains. In fact, most of our chains are beyond physical, literal chains. The bondage that we must be most aware of is the bondage to sin. And Paul describes that bondage in Romans chapter 6. He says that we are, without Christ, slaves to sin. We are bound to the command of sin and unable and, and oftentimes unwilling to turn from sin. At times, wanting to say no to the bad thing, but simply being unable to say no. But it's also in Romans that we receive the good news that through the resurrection, we have been given freedom. It says in Romans chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for he who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. See, the resurrection isn't just something that happened in front of us. Resurrection, resurrection isn't something to be simply witnessed in human history. It is something that has happened to us. It is something that has changed our humanity. We now have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to say no to sin, to say no to unrighteousness, to say no to the bondage of our past, because not only did Jesus die, but Jesus got up. And even should we fail, because he died and got up, we know that he is mighty to deliver us not only from the bondage of sin, but from the penalty of sin. For those of you in Christ who feel bound to sin, you rose with Christ. And because you rose with Christ, you are free from sin. And for those of you who are not in Christ, who are bound, this resurrection means that you can rise from the grave of sin and death. This resurrection means that you can be set free from sin. Through the resurrection, you can have freedom. This is the liberating significance of the resurrection. 
But there's not only freedom in the resurrection, there's hope in the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is something that has happened to us. We've become new creatures. The old has passed away and the new has come. We've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ into new life and new freedom. But the resurrection is not only something that has happened to us. Resurrection is something that will happen to us. Christian pastor and author Paul David Tripp calls this phenomenon the double resurrection. He says this, quote, because of this factual and historical miracle, as believers in Jesus Christ, we get to experience a double resurrection. First, we are resurrected out of our spiritual deadness and we become spiritually alive in this life. The Bible describes your life today with a beautiful word, abundant. John chapter 10, verse 10. Your heart is soft, your mind is alive, your soul desires obedience to Christ. You have been raised to life so that you can experience the beauty and glory of the gospel right here and right now. But then he continues and he says this, there's a second resurrection. It's that final moment when we will be resurrected out of this horrible, broken, groaning world to live forever in the world of righteousness and peace and harmony. There will be no violence, no suffering, no death, no sin. We will live with our Savior forever. And, and then he says this in closing. If Jesus did not rise, then there is no double resurrection for you and I. See, if Jesus did not rise, we get neither. No freedom from the bondage of sin, no freedom from death, no freedom from decay, no hope for an eternal life where we are free from the suffering of this world. But saints of God, he did rise. And so we have risen with him and we will rise with him. You see, regarding the second resurrection, the Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonian church. And he says this in the fourth chapter of that letter. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not receive those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we always will be with them. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's point in this text is not to claim that our lives are absent of grieving. You see, when we lose loved ones, we should grieve, even if those loved ones are in Christ. Because life is hard and lamenting should not be overlooked and lamenting should not be undersold. You see, we grieve because we love. So it's okay to However, his intent is to show us that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our grieving for those who we lose, who knew Christ, should never be absent of hope. Paul is clear in this text. If we grieve without hope for those who are dead in Christ, then it is because of A, we grieve without knowledge, which is the reason he's writing this to the Thessalonians, to fill in that missing knowledge. 
and to let them know that death is not the end for the saints. Or, B, we grieve without hope because we grieve without faith. In fact, he says in verse 14, for since we believe, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Since we believe. So if we truly do have faith, then that faith shapes our grief with hope. Paul even describes those who are dead in Christ as merely sleeping. You see, Jesus himself used these words to describe a young woman who died on his way to meeting her and healing her from her illness. As the story goes, he was late, at least that's what they thought. And they told the father of this young daughter, you should, you should leave the master alone. Your daughter is dead. Nevertheless, Jesus goes to the home and he finds a group of people wailing and weeping at the fact that this girl has died. And Jesus says to the people gathered in that room, why are you carrying on like that? This girl is not dead. She is sleeping. And Jesus takes the little girl by the hand and says simply, in so many words, honey, get up. And life is immediately restored to that little girl's body. Now that's awesome, but, but, but have you ever wondered why Jesus would say to that child that was dead? Or that Jesus would say to the crowd that was mourning that child that, was, that had died? This child is not dead, this child is here sleeping. Pastor Arthur Tim Keller helps us understand that with these following words, quote, Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, Death itself is nothing but sleep. If I have you by the hand, if Jesus has you by the hand, then death is no more than sleep. COVID-19, as of the time that I'm preaching this message, has claimed 20,000 deaths at least in the last six weeks, in less than six weeks in the United States. It has claimed over 100,000 deaths in the world in the last 10 or so weeks. We should grieve, we should grieve, because we grieve, but we grieve with hope, so we should grieve for those lives, and we will grieve for other deaths that come to our door, whether it be because of the virus, or whether it be because of cancer, or whether it be because of death, or just long life, natural death, or whether it be because of a car accident. Grief will come to our door. And grief will come to the door of those that we love when they lose us someday, if the Lord tarries. The saints of God, we do not have to grieve without hope. You see, there are many in that 20,000 that know Jesus Christ, and there are many in that 100,000 whose hands were firmly resting in the hands of Jesus when they closed their eyes. So they did not close their eyes to death. They closed their eyes to sleep. And one day, the master will say, honey, get up. You see, we have freedom because the resurrection happened to us, and we have hope because the resurrection will happen to us. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us, lastly, with purpose. 
See, it was after the resurrection that we get the great commission. It was after Jesus rose from the grave when you, in Matthew chapter 28, that we get the great commission to go in the latter part of Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16 through 20, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Call to go and tell is solidified in the hope of the resurrection. You see, in the resurrection, we have a Savior who not only died for us, but rose for us, inviting us to live both in this life and the next life for him. You see, the most significant event in human history also gives our lives significance. The most significant event in human history gives our lives its most significant purpose, and that is this, to make much of him, to go and tell the world about him. Let me ask you a question. Does the purpose that you live within your life resemble the realities of the resurrection? Is your purpose aligned with the resurrection? Do you live like the resurrection actually happened? Because if you live like the resurrection actually happened, you know what shapes your life? Witness. You know what shapes your life? The glory of the Savior. You want to tell somebody about this Savior who died and this Savior who rose and this Savior who has given you resurrection life in order that you, you not only have risen with him and been free from sin, but you are rising with him to a new and living hope, one that is eternal in heaven. You know, I think sometimes that we all carry the tendency to live our lives as if the resurrection could not or has not happened. We oftentimes, more than we carry admit, live life like the woman on the way to visit Jesus' grave asking, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You know, we see, we see our life as this stone that we have no help for. This, this, whether it be death, or whether it be sin, or whether it be viruses, or whether it be illnesses, or whether it be hardship or suffering. We see these stones and we look around and we say, who is it that's going to roll the stone away, not realizing? The resurrected Savior has already appeared. He has already removed the stone. Christ has rolled the stone of hardship, of suffering, of shame, of sin, of death. He's rolled it away. So I ask you as we close this morning, are you astonished by that? Do you tremble at that reality. You should. You should. You should. For those that know Jesus, let the resurrection shape the life that you live in Christ. 
for those who do not know Jesus, you can have freedom. You can have hope. You can live with purpose. But in order to do so, you must surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Lay your life down at his feet. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin. Embrace him as Lord and Savior by faith. And you will, as with us all, take part in the resurrection. You will rise with the resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you so much for your love and your kindness. We thank you so much for sending your son not only to die, but sending your son to rise. We thank you so much that in his resurrection, we've been given life. We rise, we have risen with him, and we will rise with him. Father, seal that truth, that eternal truth in our hearts. Remind us often, remind us frequently when our hearts, Lord God, stray or focus strays our, 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 our tendency, Lord God, to be amazed by lesser things begins to rise. Remind us of the, the most significant event in history and remind us of the reality that we have been given the privilege to receive from that event eternal life. Lord, if there be any that we do not know you this morning, we pray that this message in some way would draw their hearts towards you, that your spirit would draw them towards you, and that, Lord God, they would lay their lives down, that they would confess you as Lord and Savior and turn from their sin, embracing you by faith. Lord, we love you so much, and we give you all the thanks, praise, and glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.